Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but the idea of being both friends with God and with the world doesn't sound so ridiculous to me. In fact, it sounds pretty reasonable. God made this world, after all. It's filled with beautiful landscapes and wonderful creatures and fascinating people. Why can't we be friends with both? That prickly verse was left out of our reading today originally. The lectionary thought we might as well skip over that one, along with the part where James calls all of us adulterers, and sort of move straight on to the part about drawing near to God. And I think we can understand why. For lots of us, that sort of either or absolute language grates a little bit. It sounds unforgiving, out of touch, way too severe. It's the sort of stuff that makes us wince when it comes up in the Bible. I'm right there with you. Just wait a second. It's okay. But sometimes those verses that we'd rather skip over in Scripture have something that we really need to hear. So, what in the world could James mean that we can't be friends both with God and with the world? We hear that word friend, and I think we probably think of someone we care about, someone we enjoy spending time with. But it helps to know something about what James might have had in mind here. Friendship was talked about a whole lot in the ancient world, and in Greco-Roman culture, being friends with someone wasn't just about liking that person and enjoying her company. Friendship was often defined by sharing sort of a common mindset, a common way of viewing the world. Friends didn't just share an interest in stamp collecting or cheer for the same football team. No, the term was reserved for those few people with whom you really saw eye to eye, with whom you shared values and priorities and a way of looking at life. So when James says you can't be friends both with the world and with God, he doesn't mean you can't appreciate a good meal or a favorite song or walk on a nice autumn day and also love God. No, he means you cannot share two worldviews at once. You can't go around both holding on to God's values and to the world's. You've got to choose. We've been spending time with James over the past several weeks, and we have seen already that integrity is sort of a main concern of this letter. James wants things to line up. He wants our actions, our commitments, our speaking, and our way of life to reflect what we say we believe. We say we believe in a God who's gracious with us. So let's live that way. Let's act and serve and speak and be with one another in ways that allow the truth of that confession to be seen. Let's allow our faith to transform our whole lives. James has sort of been beating that drum for three chapters of this letter now. And you can sort of read our passage today as the climax of the letter, the climax of this argument. 
the place where the call to an integrated, faithful life reaches its fullest expression. We are called to be friends of God, not friends of the world. Or to put it another way, we're to live by the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world. James has a whole lot to say about that earthly wisdom and the damage it can do, but it basically comes down to just one thing. Envy. I don't know about you, but I was a little bit surprised to find James sort of summing up the wisdom of the world with that one word. I might have expected pride or violence or self-centeredness, but envy is where James focuses his attention here. That's what he sets up as the opposite to God's way, God's wisdom, and as the gateway to a world of destruction and hurt. Envy is as modern as the world around us, but it's hardly a new idea. Two of the Ten Commandments deal with it, and ancient writers outside the Jewish faith had plenty to say about it as well. Envy was widely recognized as a vice in the Greco-Roman world, something destructive to human life and wholeness. Socrates called envy the ulcer of the soul, which I think is sort of a painfully accurate description of it, actually. Someone has something you want, and it just sort of gnaws at you. There's this little ache somewhere deep down. Aristotle put it a different way. He said that the envious person experiences a certain sadness in seeing what someone else has. It could be a job, a car, a home, a partner, an ability, whatever it is. If I'm envious of you, I'm not happy for what you have. I'm only aware of my own lack. And it all comes from confusing having with being. Luke Timothy Johnson puts the problem of envy this way. A person's identity and worth derive from what can be acquired and possessed. In such a view, to have less is to be less. Less real, less worthy, less important. Therefore, one feels a sense of loss and therefore of grief or sorrow. Conversely, to have more is to be more. More real, more important, more worthy. If only I had that person's job, or that person's house, or that person's resume, then I would be important. Then I would be fully alive. Then my life would be more real. James says that's what the wisdom of the world basically amounts to. And it's pretty amazing how well that description has held up for 2,000 years. If anything, that worldview only seems amplified today. It's how advertising works, of course, telling us in countless subtle and not-so-subtle ways that if only we had this particular product, our lives would finally burst from black and white to living color. Our whole economies run on envy, on the persistent message that we don't have enough and therefore are not enough, and that the only way to cope is to consume, consume, consume. It powers everything from social media to corporations to governments. James can sound a little bit extreme in his diagnosis of where envy leads. You covet something and you cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You want something and you do not have it, so you commit murder. It's quite a leap 
from coveting all the way to murder. But really, is he so far off? Left unchecked, the conviction that we are what we have, that our ultimate value is tied up in what we acquire, has led from perpetual discontent to death and destruction on a global scale, harming lives and communities and the natural world. It is not a pretty picture. So what's the alternative? Not long ago, I heard Rowan Williams speaking on the subject of kindness. We might have all sorts of associations with that word, like it's about being nice or polite to others, that it's about doing good in some very pious sounding way. But I love what Williams said about it. He said that when he thinks of a kind person, he thinks of someone who takes genuine joy in the well-being of another. If someone is kind to me, he's not just being charitable with me, or grudgingly giving me a little bit of his time, or putting on a smile to be nice. If someone is being kind to me, she is in fact interested in things going well for me. She would actually like to see me be a better, more fulfilled, more whole person. And anything that contributes to my well-being brings her joy. She is actually glad for the goodness that happens in my life. It's a particularly beautiful trait to encounter in another person. I think you probably know what I mean. And it seems about as close as you can get to the opposite of envy, as far as I'm concerned. If envy sees the good in another person's life and grumbles that it's not mine, kindness sees the good in another person's life and gives thanks to the God who provides for us all. If envy sees life as about acquiring more, kindness sees life as about appreciating all that has been given. If envy amounts to constant discontent at a perceived lack, kindness amounts to renewed gratitude for the abundance that's all around. In a world steeped in envy, where it's actually the engine powering so much of life, kindness is a profoundly revolutionary way of being. James has other words for the wisdom of God here. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. In practice, I imagine it looks a whole lot like kindness, like taking joy in the abundant grace of God present not just in one's own life, but also in the lives of others. And you can't have it both ways, James says. Either life is a zero-sum game of limited resources where it is really about piling up stuff, titles and honors and possessions. Or life is a gift with plenty to go around, grace upon grace, enough for you and for me and for our neighbors. It's one or the other. You can't be a friend of God and a friend of the world. So, you are probably thinking this is the part of the sermon where I'm going to ask you all to choose, right? And yes, you are right, of course. That's exactly what James wants us to do. To stop hobbling along trying to have it both ways and live like friends of God already. 
So yes, do that. Amen. <laughs> and when it proves hard, just keep at it. My wife, Greta, spent a number of months volunteering in a convent many years ago, and one of the sisters there was fond of saying, we are all in need of conversion. I've always remembered that. We often think of becoming a Christian as something that happens in a single moment or single point in one's life. But really, no matter how long you have been at this life of faith, there's room for more to be accomplished in us. There's room to grow, room to change, room to let the gift of God's abundant life seep deeper into your bones, transforming us anew, making us people not of envy, but of kindness and gentle wisdom. And there is no time like the present to draw near to God once again, to recall the kindness of this one who draws near to us with all the more grace, who calls us friends. Amen.